0: Hi there, my name is Liam, and you are listening to the Galway Neuroscience Podcast. This is a new spot where you can learn all about the key concepts in brain science. This podcast series is created, written, and hosted by the students of the Clinical Neuroscience Master's Program here at NUIG. Our aim is to communicate the most up-to-date findings of neuroscience research by discussing interesting articles, interviewing key research figures, and answering your questions on how our brains work. First up, Michael and Emma are going to discuss an interesting research topic. The topic, how parasites infect the brain and how infection influences how our brains function.
1: Thanks, Liam. Hi, I'm Emma.
2: And I'm Michael. And today we will be discussing whether we are able to be manipulated by microorganisms that are so small we cannot even see them.
1: And also, if there is any possibility that our personality or behaviour could be affected.
2: Well, firstly, I looked to the animal kingdom to see if any particular microorganisms can take over control or alter some aspect of our behaviour. While conducting this research, I came across a really interesting parasite uh, known as Toxoplasma gondii, or T. gondii for short. Initially, I thought it sounded more like a spell that Harry Potter or Ron Weasley would cast, but the further I delved into the literature, it became apparent that this parasite is capable of performing its own magic, So, this parasite can infect warm-blooded mammals and is only known to reproduce in cats, so it must seek out our feline friend to reproduce. Uh, The particular study that I looked at examined the arch-nemesis of the cat, the mouse. Anyone who has watched a Disney film will know that mice are instinctually afraid of cats. Cats are their main natural predator, so they have an aversion or a desire to avoid the sight and smell of them. If they did not have this fear, there would be a lot less mice and a lot more fat cats strutting around. Remarkably, when mice are infected by the parasite that I mentioned before, something very peculiar happens. They no longer fear cats.
1: That's so interesting. Does the infected mouse then lose its ability to smell?
2: Yeah, I initially thought the same thing as well, Emma. But when I dived further into the research, uh, the ability of infected mice to smell is actually not affected at all. The parasite actually localizes itself in a part of the brain that controls a response to fear and alters the hormones being produced here. This change in hormone production ultimately makes the mouse fearless of cat odors and less likely to avoid them.
1: But why would a mouse be less fearful of their main natural predator? This seems kind of counterintuitive for the mouse.
2: Yeah, it seems like madness, but for the parasite living inside the mouse, this means it's able to find the cat to reproduce. If you remember earlier, I mentioned the parasite can only reproduce in cats. The parasite may have changed the chemistry of the mouse brain to ensure it could find the cat to reproduce. This study kind of reminds me of Tom and Jerry.
1: I was just about to say that. Maybe this was why Jerry wasn't always so afraid of Tom.
2: Yeah, maybe a parasite had eroded his fear of cats. It left me wondering, could it be possible for humans to be controlled?
1: As much as I'd like to say no, humans actually can contract toxoplasmosis as well. You can't catch it, but the most likely way one would become infected would be by coming into contact with cat feces that contains the parasite. Once a person becomes infected, the parasite forms cysts across the body, but particularly in the brain. Generally though, if you're a healthy person, your body will prevent the parasite from causing much harm by keeping it inactive, and then like a vaccine, it'll prevent you from getting infected again.
2: Uh, Right, so I actually heard before that pregnant women should be cautious around cats and litter trays. Is this maybe why?
1: Yeah, that's exactly why pregnant women should be extra cautious around their cats or strays. It can be difficult to detect visible symptoms of this infection in cats, so it's always better to err on the side of caution.
2: Uh, But how exactly can a parasite affect humans? Is it similar to the way that mice are infected?
1: Yeah, so if a human contracts this parasite, the highest densities of cysts are found in a structure of the brain called the amygdala. And like you were saying, Michael, this then affects their fear response. The amygdala plays an important role in emotions and reactions, particularly fear and anger responses, which could explain why we see such a changed fear response.
2: And like, how common is it for humans to be infected by this parasite?
1: Well, when researchers started to note that Toxoplasma gondii infection led to behavioral changes in rodents, they then began to wonder if something similar could be happening in humans. And the answer is yes. A German study from 2016 suggests that we are at an increased risk of being infected as we age, with the prevalence increasing from 20% in the 18- to 29-year-old age group to 77% in the 70- to 79-year-old age group. Generally, though, global and UK estimates suggest the prevalence to be in or under 30% of all people.
2: I really didn't think it would be that high. Are there any long-lasting changes to people's behaviors or maybe their personality following an infection?
1: There's actually a significant body of literature revealing personality differences between infected and non-infected people. A 2015 study that I found showed infected females had significantly higher levels of trait reactive aggression, and infected males showed higher impulse sensation seeking. A review article I found on the effects of T. gondii indicated that infection has a variety of effects, such as increased reaction time and personality differences. They also found over 40 studies that showed an increased prevalence of toxoplasmosis among individuals with schizophrenia, and that toxoplasma-positive patients with schizophrenia displayed greater intensity of their positive symptoms like hallucinations. This same review article noted that in multiple papers that looked at blood type, it was observed that being RHD positive, like being AB positive, seems to protect against these observed effects like increased reaction time. I found these results interesting because they seem to illustrate the wide variety of personality difference that infected individuals could encounter if they become symptomatic.
2: So basically, it is more common than we think.
1: Even though it is quite common, for the most part, toxoplasmosis is still predominantly asymptomatic and it's not screened for in general health assessments. Although this can all sound a bit frightening, again, most people who contract it will never be aware as they won't display major changes, but it's still an interesting topic to think about.
0: Now, for the podcast interview, Ellie and Nathan are talking with pioneering geneticist and NUIG-based researcher Derek Morris. Derek is the director of the Galway Neuroscience Centre.
3: Thanks for that, Liam. So, hello, my name is Ellie.
0: Hi, I'm Nathan, and today we're joined by our guest, Derek
4: Morris. Thanks a million, Derek, for taking time to talk to us this evening. So, just to get going, could you give us a, just a quick overview of the Galway Neuroscience Centre or the GNC and maybe touch upon why, what it has to offer uh, in terms of being an interdisciplinary research group?
5: Yeah, happy to do so. So nice to, to have the opportunity to tell you about the Galway Neuroscience Centre. So it's a centre for excellence in neuroscience research and education and teaching here in NUI Galway. Uh, and at its core, it's focused on improving our knowledge of the brain and the nervous system. And then once we have that new knowledge, what we want to do is try and use it to improve the outcome for individuals that are affected by different illnesses that affect the nervous system or the brain. And disorders of the brain and the nervous system are a massive a strain on our health service and on society and have a huge economic impact. Um, so for example, they account for 35% of U- Europe's total disease burden uh, at an annual, co- annual cost of around 400 billion euros per year. So there's a major focus on the neuroscience research in, in Galway uh, on uh, the biomedical uh, aspects of uh, the work to try and improve our understanding of different diseases. So there's a huge community of researchers that contribute to the Galway Neuroscience Centre. And that includes academic staff in the university, students in the university, both undergraduate and postgraduate students, other researchers that are employed, and also clinicians uh, at Galway uh, University Hospital. And all of these individuals have an interest in neuroscience research and teaching. So in total, we've got about 25, what we call principal investigators. So these are senior scientists who supervise research in their own labs. Um, And together uh, we would represent one of the largest centres for neuroscience research in Ireland. And then across the Galway Neuroscience Centre, our activity can be broadly um, uh, described in three different areas. So we have activity in terms of research, we have activity in terms of teaching, and then we also have activity in terms of outreach with the community.
3: Okay, and could you tell us a bit more about the research that is conducted by the GNC and maybe talk a bit about some of your own research as well?
5: Yeah, happy to do that. So as I mentioned, uh, the research uh, primarily in the Galway Neuroscience Centre has a a focus uh, on biomedical science. And what we're interested in studying are disorders that fall into three different areas. So we've got neurodegenerative disorders, such as uh, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, Huntington's disease, also disorders like uh, multiple sclerosis. Uh, But we also um, uh, study and research stroke and also spinal cord injury then we have a lot of research activity in the area of neuropsychiatric disorders so they would be disorders like schizophrenia bipolar disorder, depression uh, childhood onset disorders like autism and then lastly there's also a major area of research uh, related to pain so that's looking at uh, chronic inflammatory and neuropathic pain uh, post-op uh, as well as uh, post-operative pain um, so all this research kind of then uh, occurs along a continuum that we can kind of capture with the term bench to bedside. So that covers uh, basic science research all the way through to clinical research. So basic science research, you know, its main aim is to try and uncover the biology, the, the basic biology of the brain and nerve function uh, and to understand how and why that biology may not be functioning properly in individuals that are affected with a particular illness. Um, the next stage along that continuum is translational science, and in, when we're doing translational science or translational research, what we're trying to do is link basic science with human medicine, and we're aiming, for example, to develop interventions that will improve the health of individuals and also the public. And then we have clinical research, and that includes studies to better understand disease in, in humans, and then relate that knowledge to the findings from basic science and translational research. And clinical research may also involve testing new interventions to see if they can result in better outcomes for patients. So along that continuum from basic through to clinical research, then we employ a lot of different research methods. And a particular strength of research at the Gowen Neuroscience Centre is its interdisciplinarity, which means that we can combine different types of research to try and solve a problem from a range of different angles. and, in, and that research activity then uh, occurs between the scientists, clinicians, but also partners from industry uh, and, and uh, other hospital services. So what types of, of methods do we use? So we have a lot of molecular methods that we employ, such as genetics methods and molecular biology techniques. And these are usually focused to try and help us study what happens inside uh, uh, individual nerve cells, for example. Uh, we use imaging techniques to study the function and structure of the human brain. Uh, We use behavioural studies of motor, cognitive and sensory function in both animals and humans to understand those. And we also then investigate psychosocial interventions uh, in the context of neurological or or psychiatric disorders. Uh, And uh, another important area of research uh, within the centre relates to the use of biomaterials to try and deliver drug treatments to brain regions in, for example, neurodegenerative disorders. Uh, In terms then of my own research, is in the area of psychiatric disorders. I particularly work on schizophrenia. So, schizophrenia is a common adult psychiatric disorder. It affects about 1% of the population and it's a very disabling disorder. Um, It has a range of different symptoms positive symptoms, negative symptoms, and cognitive uh, impairment. Um, But, like many disorders of the brain, Schizophrenia is strongly heritable, which means that we know that genetics makes an important contribution to an individual's risk of developing schizophrenia. Um, because the the brain is is difficult to study, genetics gives us an important angle that we can try and exploit. So, if we know that a disorder like schizophrenia is highly heritable, we can use genetic studies to try and identify the individual genes that that are that we which we would consider to be risk genes for the disorder. So, by by studying Patient samples and controls, and DNA from those individuals, we can identify uh, genes and proteins that are part of the biology of the illness. Once we understand more about these proteins, we can then understand well what biological processes are those proteins involved in the brain. Uh, those biological processes, you know, what uh, cells, what brain regions do they occur? So overall, using the genetic studies, we can uh, start to build a picture of the biology of the illness. And once we know more about the biology of the illness, we can start to think about developing new methods for diagnosing the illness or we can think about new methods uh, for treating the illness.
4: That's great, Derek. You seem to cover a lot within the group. Um, So just in regards to the aims of the group, you mentioned education. Uh, So could you share more on the education programmes associated with the GNC?
5: Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of neuroscience uh, taught at uh, undergraduate and postgraduate level in, in NUI Galway. So at undergraduate level we don't have um, uh, an individual neuroscience degree, but within several of the biomedical science subjects like anatomy, uh, biochemistry, pharmacology, physiology, uh, there's a lot of of neuroscience modules taught and opportunities for for students to study neuroscience. And because we have a lot of uh, scientists uh, that lead neuroscience groups, for fourth-year students, uh, a major element of of being a fourth-year science student is your fourth-year research project. So quite a a large number of science students would undertake 4 year projects in neuroscience. And that's an opportunity for them to learn more about particular illnesses and areas and some of the methods that I've mentioned already that are important in the context of neuroscience research. At postgraduate level, then, we do have dedicated master's programmes in neuroscience. So there's the master's in clinical neuroscience and there's also the master's in neuropharmacology. Uh, And again, these are one-year taught programmes that give students the opportunity to really build on Uh, build their expertise in different aspects of neuroscience um, that are are relevant to to current research. Um, Students in those postgraduate courses would also undertake uh, three-month research projects, again with the neuroscience focus, and again helping to build their skills and knowledge uh, in neuroscience uh, as they progress through their postgraduate education. And lastly then, uh, we have many PhD students uh, undertaking their studies in the area of neuroscience. So these PhD students then are supervised by some of the, I mentioned, 25 principal investigators we have in the Galway Neuroscience Centre, and they cover all the different illnesses, including neurodegenerative disorders, neuropsychiatric disorders, uh, and uh, studies related to pain. And these students would also um, uh, use or or be trained in a range of different uh, skills uh, relating from genetics to neuroimaging, to behavioral studies, Uh, uh, to clinical research and patient-orientated research.
3: So you mentioned earlier that the GNC is involved in some community outreach. Um, Could you tell us a bit about some of this and then what you're aiming to achieve with them?
5: Yeah, so outreach involves, you know, sharing our knowledge and our love of neuroscience with the general public. And there's a number of different events during the year where Galway Neuroscience are involved uh, with the aim of, of sharing that knowledge. So, for example, there's Brain Awareness Week that occurs in March each year. And um, ordinarily, in uh, non-pandemic times, uh, we would set up an opportunity for uh, school children from primary and second level uh, to come in and uh, undertake different activities and participate in different workshops related to neuroscience and brain function. Uh, we also uh, are involved in the Galway Science and Technology Festival in November each year and again have a stand there and opportunities for young people to um, explore different aspects of neuroscience and hopefully pique their interest in the subject. Several uh, of the investigators in Galway Neuroscience Centre have also been involved in uh, the production of films uh, related to neuroscience. So an example uh, of that uh, was the film Feats of Modest Valor, which was developed under the Science on Screen initiative in 2016. So that was supported by CURAM, uh, which is the SFI Centre for uh, Biomaterials at NUI Galway. Uh, and also in collaboration with the Galway Film Centre. So this film combines the story of the lived experience of three patients who suffer from Parkinson's disease, and that's combined with the efforts by Dr. Eilish Dowd's research group to develop new medical devices to slow or even to halt the progression of the disease. So it's a, an interesting film in that it gives an insight into uh, what the experience is of patients and how they um, uh, live with the illness and at times struggle with the illness. Uh, but it's also uh, matched against what current research is underway at NUI Galway to try and come up with uh, methods to uh, deliver uh, medications that potentially could, as I say, slow or halt the disease. And overall, the purpose of the outreach activities and different public engagement activities is to create greater awareness of neuroscience and related disorders. And that can be important on a number of different levels. So one area... um, uh, which uh, is relevant to the context of psychiatric disorders, is trying to reduce the stigma associated with, the, with these disorders. So um, there's data to show that when uh, people in the general public uh, understand, for example, schizophrenia to be a biological disorder, they have a better understanding of what the illness is, and that can help reduce some of the stigma experienced by patients who suffer from that illness.
4: That's all really interesting. So just to conclude, uh, going forward, what would you say is the future vision of the GNC and some of the future visions for your own research?
5: So the overarching aim of the Centre over the next number of years is to continue its efforts in research, education and outreach. And uh, when I spoke earlier about the science uh, existing along a continuum from bench to bedside, obviously what we want to do is try and transition more from the basic science through to the translational and clinical science. So really by generating new knowledge about how the brain works and how some of these disorders of the brain and the nervous system occur, what we want to do is use that knowledge uh, to come up with better methods of diagnosis, better uh, and new therapies that can improve outcome for patients and their families. So the human brain is the most complex entity in the universe, so we still have a huge amount to learn. So so there's, there's plenty of research to undertake and achievements to be made uh, in neuroscience that would be important for as I say, people that are affected, but also the wider uh, society and the economy. Uh, In terms of our own research in schizophrenia genetics, uh, we've, uh, over the last decade, uh, come through a very exciting time where new genomic technologies have uh, given us massive new insights into the genetic basis of schizophrenia and other psychiatric disorders like depression and bipolar disorder. So now that we know a lot about the the genes that are involved, We're starting to get an insight into what proteins, what cell types, what biological processes in the brain are affected. But we still have a long way to go to fully understand how those are all connected with each other. And then once we know the biology, we have a lot to do to try and understand, well, what can we do to uh, treat this illness or uh, to better uh, identify, for example, which medications might be most effective uh, for which individuals. So lots of work to do. Uh, Neuroscience is an area that's going to continue to grow and grow And our aim in the GNC is to try and uh, pursue that and drive it forward as best we can.
3: Thanks again for your time, Derek. Uh, It was a pleasure talking to you today. Um, We found it really interesting and we look forward to seeing what's next with GNC and your own research projects.
4: Yeah, same as that, Derek. Thanks very much uh, for taking the time. It was a pleasure chatting to you today. Thank you very much.
0: For our last section, Nathan and Ellie will answer some of your questions about how the brain works. The questions have been submitted by secondary school students from around the country. So Ellie, do you want to kick us off with the first question?
3: Yeah, so um, Patrick wants to know why the brain has wrinkles.
4: Uh, Yeah, that's a great question, Patrick. So our brains can definitely look like strange looking objects at times. Uh, These wrinkles actually have names, so we call them gyri and sulci. Uh, So the gyri are the ridges or bulges and the sulci are little valleys or grooves that together make the brain appear as if it were wrinkled. So when our brains are growing, the tissue on the outside of the brain, which we call grey matter, actually grows faster than the tissue on the inside. So we call that white matter. So the grey matter on the outside it starts to fold in on itself and it creates these, that wrinkle-looking effect. Uh, however, in fact, not all brains have these wrinkles. So animals like mice and rats don't actually have these wrinkles at all and they're actually smooth-brained. Um, but animals like primates and humans, we, we do have them. So these wrinkles increase the surface area of the brain, meaning that more brain tissue can exist in the limited area of our skulls, um, which means that our brain cells, which we call neurons, can actually have more connections with each other. So this might be one of the reasons actually why humans are capable of complex thought and reasoning because we have more of these connections. Uh, So just to answer your question, Patrick, we have these wrinkles because our gray matter brain tissue on the outside of the brain uh, grows faster than the inside tissue, which we call white matter, uh, which causes it to fold in on itself.
3: So the next question was a very popular one. Um, So a number of students want to know how does memory work?
4: Yes, that's a brilliant question because I think it's something that we all wonder about and I think it's really central to all our day-to-day lives. Um, So to break down how it works, uh, we can say there are three main parts of memory. So we can call them encoding, storage and retrieval. So encoding is basically the learning that occurs when you see or hear new information uh the storage is when you uh when the things you learn during the encoding phase become stored in the brain. Uh so in order for this information to actually go into storage, there are two types of memory processes the information has to go through first. So the first of these is called short-term memory, uh which only lasts for a short period of time, uh just to maybe around 15 to 30 seconds, and it can only store a little information at a time. Uh so to keep this information in short-term memory, we can repeat it to ourselves. So like When you hear a new phone number, for example, and you repeat it in your head a few times while you're dialing it. Um, But if there is too much information or you stop rehearsing it, uh, you will forget it. So the next uh, process is called long-term memory, which is information that is important enough or has a lot of meaning for you, which will move it away from short-term memory into long-term memory. So the information could potentially stay in your brain forever. Uh, The last part of memory is retrieval, uh, which is essentially just us remembering things. To distinguish between the different types, the short-term memories are remembered in the order that you experience them. So, for example, you'd remember the phone number with a three-digit number first, so like the 087, and then you'd remember the rest of the number, whereas the long-term memory is remembered through association. So this is why you'd remember smells or sounds, and they might bring up a, a certain specific memory for you.
3: So the next question is from Finbar and Clodagh, who ask, what happens when we dream?
4: Yeah, so this is another really good question, particularly as science are actually still trying to figure this out. Um, So we do know that dreams can occur at any part of sleep, but the most vivid and memorable uh, ones actually occur during a certain part of our sleep cycle, uh, which we call rapid eye movement or REM sleep. So during this REM sleep, our brain actually paralyzes us so we don't actually act out our dreams. So during this this sleep cycle, there are certain brain areas which are particularly active when we're dreaming, such as the visual cortex, uh, which is responsible for the visual aspects of dreaming. Uh, and also the limbic system, uh, which is responsible for the emotional aspects of our dreams. Interestingly, some of the parts of the frontal cortex, which is usually responsible for reasoning and air detection, are actually less active during dreaming, uh, which may be one of the reasons why we're convinced that all these crazy things that happen while we dream are actually real and are actually happening. While scientists still don't know exactly why we dream, there are a couple of theories, however. So some theories think that dreaming is important for building memories or processing emotions, while others think that it's a form of mental housekeeping or organising any inaccurate or incomplete information. Still, some others think that dreaming is just a result of some random neural firing while we sleep. But overall, dreaming is certainly a fascinating area of ongoing research. So our next question was sent in by Katie, who asks, how does déjà vu work?
3: Yeah, so this is a great example um, of a question that science hasn't completely figured out yet. However, there are a few theories about what causes deja vu, which I can share. So, the most basic theory suggests that deja vu is driven by a past memory that you've forgotten. And so, the sense of deja vu is simply the recall of this memory as it relates to the current situation. Another theory suggests that perception may be involved that you might not be paying attention, or you might be distracted to what's going on around you, so you're not fully perceiving the situation. So when you refocus on what is actually happening, it may seem oddly familiar as if the same thing has happened before in the past. So another theory suggests that déjà vu is caused by a delayed signal in the processing of memory formation. For example, a signal may enter the brain twice, once in each half of the brain, but one of the signals is delayed by a few milliseconds and this causes the event to be processed as two separate experiences and so a person may feel as though they are reliving the first memory again. It was also suggested that déjà vu may be related to dreams in that someone may experience an event that has a slight similarity to a past dream in which they have subconsciously retained some memory of, making them feel as if they have experienced that current situation before.
4: So the final question comes from Jack, who asks, can we remove the brain of a deceased person and use it in someone whose brain is damaged?
3: Yeah, so this is a tough one. Um, but I guess the short answer to this question is no, it's not possible to do that for a range of reasons. However, if it were possible, a person would no longer be who they once were. as personality is linked to the brain and its structures. So, neuropsychological research of individuals with traumatic brain injuries has provided evidence for the relationship between someone's brain and their personality. For example, in 1848, a man named Phineas Gage was working for a railroad company and his job involved using explosives to clear rock formations. Unfortunately, uh, one day he got distracted, which resulted in an iron rod being sent straight through the left side of his face, behind his left eye and through the left side of his brain, eventually breaking through the top of his skull. Amazingly, uh, Phineas remained conscious throughout this and he eventually recovered from the accident. However, he wasn't the person he was before, with many people who knew him saying that he was no longer Gage. Why? Because Phineas's frontal lobe had been damaged, which resulted in changes to his personality. Therefore, as you can imagine, even if we could give someone an entirely new brain, they would no longer be the person they were before, as their personality would likely have completely changed.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Galway Neuroscience Podcast. A very special thanks to today's guest, Dr. Derek Morris of the Galway Neuroscience Centre, for sharing his time with us. Today's episode was brought to you by our hosts, Emma, Michael, Ellie, Nathan, and myself, Liam. Our writers, Mary, Emma, Jane, and Jason. Our artist Shauna. Our editor, Diana. Our promoters, Ellie and James. And our producer, Thomas.